at the intersection of North Broad Street, Fairmount, and Ridge Avenues in the Fairmount section of North Philadelphia stands a massive yellow Pompeian brick and marble building. It's one of the earliest high-rises in the city, built between 1892 and 1894. It's 10 stories tall with grand open arches in the front facade, giving passersby a peek into the interior balconies within the building. The architect? A man named Willis G. Hale. Hale wasn't a Philadelphia native. He was born in 1848 in Seneca, New York, where he studied architecture before moving to the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection when he was barely in his 20s. He apprenticed under architect John MacArthur Jr., the man who designed my beloved Philadelphia City Hall. If you've seen photos I've shared of City Hall on social media, you know it's an elaborate, ostentatious, glorious creation. John MacArthur's eye for going over the top was embraced by his apprentice Willis Hale, and it's likely the reason Hale's few remaining buildings in Philadelphia are among my favorites, including the giant yellow building in Fairmount. Hale was commissioned to build a grand apartment building, something that would attract wealthy Philadelphians who may not have fit into the old money neighborhoods of Rittenhouse Square and other parts of Center City. I think the term at the time was nouveau riche. As far as I'm concerned, money spends the same way, whether it's old or new. But that's not how some circles of society believe. Hale's apartment building, named the Lorraine Apartments, was a state-of-the-art structure for the turn of the century. It had electricity. Each apartment had a telephone. Probably most appealing of all were the elevators. So few buildings before that time were more than three or four stories tall because who wants to walk up that many flights of steps? Residents of the Lorraine didn't need their own staff, no chef, no housekeepers, because the building provided those amenities. It had an opulent design aesthetic, marble fireplaces, dark wood, ornate cornices, and beautifully carved railings along the balconies. It was a palace, fit for residents who made their money during the Industrial Revolution. They made a lot of it, and they wanted to spend a lot of it. Willis G. Hale was recognized by his peers as a skilled architect with a unique style, albeit a little extravagant. But critics, do you remember what folks said about City Hall once it was finally completed? It was ridiculed. And that's what most people thought about the Lorraine Apartments and many other Hale buildings. While there are several residential properties around the city built by Willis Hale, the Lorraine and the Hale Building in Center City are the only two Hale high-rises left in Philadelphia. In 1893, Hale gained a level of notoriety he hadn't sought. The Hale Building in Center City was called Aberration Number no. 9 in a publication by the Architectural Record. Good thing the Lorraine wasn't finished for another year or so, or that might have been called Aberration Number no. 10. His buildings were called jumbled messes. One critic even called them revolting. I wonder what that says about my taste because of any of the Hale creations still standing, the Lorraine is by far my favorite. But this isn't an episode just about Willis G. Hale and the criticism that still swirls around his legacy today. It's about that yellow behemoth standing tall above North Broad Street, City Hall off in the distance as you look south, it's about the property we actually call the Divine Lorraine, the man who gave this building that name. It's divine history fighting segregation and a connection to one of the most infamous mass murders in the 20th century. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly.
the Divine Lorraine you see today is not the one that existed 20 years ago. Even though the Divine was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2002, it sat abandoned for decades after 1999. There was graffiti inside and out that marred what was once a grand dam of hotels in Philadelphia. When you enter the Divine Lorraine, you walk into a room with marble columns and a grand double staircase. It once had sculptural facades all over the walls, and nearly every inch of that foyer was covered in graffiti before Eric Blumenfeld purchased the Divine Lorraine in 2012, then spent the next four or five years restoring and renovating it into luxury apartments, as it was when it opened in 1894. By 1890, the Lorraine was converted to a hotel. That area of North Philadelphia had quickly turned to a retail and commercial district. There was less of a need for private residences within its walls and greater need for hotel space. While the accommodations were lovely, you weren't able to stay at the Lorraine Hotel unless you were white. One of the earliest desegregation efforts in Philadelphia dates back to 1865, when civil rights activist Octavius Caddo sat in a white streetcar and he refused to get up. He actually slept in the streetcar overnight. Within a few years, the city passed a bill desegregating the trolley system in Philadelphia, which was a win for civil rights in the city, but it was just one small step. Hotels, theaters, schools, so many other parts of Philadelphia were still segregated through the 1960s. According to the essay, Civil Rights in a Northern City from the Temple University Library, businesses in Philadelphia separated help-wanted ads by race. Ads for housing in Philadelphia newspapers were also separated by race. This was finally banned in 1954, less than 70 years ago. Years before that, though, the Lorraine Apartments underwent a significant transformation in 1948. It was the first hotel in Philadelphia to become desegregated, and that was thanks to a very special new owner, Reverend Major Jealous Divine, better known as Father Divine. Father Divine was born sometime in the 1880s on a plantation in Georgia. He was the son of freed slaves who started life under the name George Baker. Now, considering the atmosphere he grew up in post-Reconstruction after the Civil War, he was likely exposed to traveling preachers around the South. Faith and spirituality would have been a large part of his childhood. In his late teens, Father Divine worked with an independent religious minister before venturing out on his own, developing a faithful practice using his own beliefs that included separation of the sexes, but integration and union of all races. This was the Peace Mission Movement, and it was considered a foundational step in the Civil Rights Movement. Father Divine founded the Peace Mission Movement in the 1920s when he lived in the Long Island area of New York. He and his wife, Panina, whom their followers called Mother Divine, led a group of followers who practiced a simple and what might have been called a clean lifestyle. Celibacy was required for the members of the peace mission movement. Men and women lived as brothers and sisters. Alcohol and tobacco were forbidden. Education was paramount, not only an academic education, but education about other races and other religions. They learned not only about Christianity, but Judaism, plus democracy which helped build unity between everyone, regardless of who they were or where they came from. Father Divine declared himself God among his followers. Okay, now that sounds a little crazy, but in the context of who he was to his followers, what he did for them, he was like a representation of the Spirit of God on earth. Divine helped his followers find employment. He fed them. He clothed them. 
He didn't just encourage them to get an education. He sometimes provided the means for them to do so. He gave them housing and helped them find homes of their own if they so desired. Father Divine received donations from his disciples, and then he used that money to support them. This was not a televangelist preacher who created a ruse to raise millions and then live in a mansion while their followers struggled with food or housing insecurity. The Peace Mission movement was well known in Long Island. Father and Mother Divine hosted massive banquets for sometimes thousands of people. There could be tables set up in the street or other public spaces. These were sometimes enormous events, and they weren't just in Long Island. Father Divine hosted these banquets in other parts of New York and New Jersey, and this is really where people came together to worship and listen to sermons. And this is why we can't have nice things, because you know someone just had to start some shit and complain. It was often more than just one someone who complained, and usually when they complained, they got the cops involved. Father and Mother Divine were black. They were the first black family in what was described as an all-white community in the Sayreville section of Long Island. Their neighbors did not like seeing people coming and going from the Divine household. They didn't like that meetings were held there. They didn't like the banquets and the dinners. In his piece, Heaven Was a Place in Harlem, written in 2018, Vince Dixon reported the large groups visiting Father Divine's home were a racially diverse group, but primarily women. So, as you can imagine, the tongues started wagging among bored housewives, and the rumor mill about what went on in Father and Mother Divine's household got pretty unpleasant. His neighbors spent years trying to have him removed. In 1931, the police were called, and they raided the Divine's house. Father Divine was arrested, plus more than two dozen of his followers. As a result of this arrest, Father Divine was supposed to serve a 30-day sentence. Well, apparently the judge who passed down the sentence passed away within a few days after the sentencing hearing. Father Divine considered this divine intervention, and he even told this story to his followers for years as an example of what he called divine retribution. I love how he used the word divine in everything in addition to his name. Father and Mother Divine left Long Island. They settled in Harlem later in the 30s, and there he opened his first resident hotel. He made it easier for his followers to receive support and guidance. He offered them a place to live and food on their table. This was the first of many, and for all his eccentricities and what some people might have called a cult, Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement did so much to contribute not just to the members, but to the community at large. He opened more residential hotels. He opened restaurants. The mission ran farms. All of this was to provide jobs and food for thousands of members across the country. In the 1930s, the peace mission movement fought to outlaw segregation. They wanted to outlaw lynching and capital punishment. While Father Divine's teachings may have been based in religion, they didn't judge others for divergent beliefs. The peace mission movement focused more on what was right versus trying to be righteous over other people. While many of his followers were black Americans, Father Divine accepted and welcomed anyone who was willing to adhere to the tenets of the peace mission movement. The movement was so large that during the mid-20th century, there were members in Europe and Australia all over the world. In 1942, Father Divine moved to Philadelphia. While we don't know what year, it's reported his wife, Penina, Mother Divine, died shortly thereafter. Father Divine wasn't single for very long, and he didn't need to look farther than his followers to find wife number two, a beautiful young Canadian woman named Edna Rose. She was considerably younger than Father Divine. By that time, he was close to 70, and Edna, or Sweet Angel as she was called by Divine, was in her 20s. 
Sweet Angel was a stenographer at a jewelry store before she married Father Divine. He considered her his virgin bride. And she stayed that way, because although they were married, the peace mission movement demanded celibacy. And according to both Father Divine and Sweet Angel, they never consummated their marriage. As if that wasn't surprising enough, the couple declared the spirit of Mother Divine. His first wife, Penina, inhabited Sweet Angel's soul, and therefore he hadn't actually married another woman. He remarried his first wife, Mother Divine. Listening to this testament, you can understand why so much of the good work of the peace mission movement was overshadowed by claims that Father Divine was a cult leader, people called him a crackpot, he was even sometimes called a charlatan. In truth, though, according to author Vince Dixon, Divine was a holy man, he was a restaurateur, and he was a civil rights leader. A few years after relocating to Philadelphia, Father Divine purchased the Lorraine Hotel. And that's when an enormous sign went up on the top of the building with red letters reading Divine Lorraine. That sign still stands today, and it is iconic as you head north on Broad Street, the words Divine Lorraine rising in the distance. It's really what drew me to that building the first time I saw that sign years ago. And then, of course, I slipped down a rabbit hole to learn more about this gorgeous building and its bizarre history. The other major change to the Lorraine was integration. Father Divine's followers were a diverse, unified group, and the Lorraine became a brick-and-mortar representation of his commitment to that diversity and inclusion. Photographs of the peace mission banquets from the mid-century show black and white followers sitting together, listening to Divine sermons, serving food to one another, and dining at the same table. It is a stark contrast to the segregated images, not only from around the country, but Philadelphia during the same time. And no one paid for a meal. Father Divine's followers ate for free. Everything was funded by donations to the movement. These banquets were such a symbol, not only of the peace mission movement, but they were considered a new way of looking at what's known in Christian religions as Holy Communion or the Eucharist. According to Sylvester Johnson, director of Virginia Tech's Center for Humanities and an expert in African-American religious history, these banquets were, quote, a tangible gift from the man they called God. Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement believed heaven wasn't just an ethereal or otherworldly experience. They saw heaven as something attainable here and now, among the followers with their feet firmly rooted on earth. Father Divine worked to prove that belief between housing, jobs, education, and food, so much food, so many banquets. He did whatever he could to make people's lives better in this life. About Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement, Sylvester Johnson said, Here is a multicultural movement that is led by what outsiders would view as a black man. He was leading this movement in which people have financial security, they have food security, they had housing security during the Great Depression in the city. And that's striking. In the 1950s, while they lived in Philadelphia at the Divine Lorraine, Father and Mother Divine met someone whose name may be familiar to you. Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Temple. I shit you not. In my research, I found a booklet titled Pastor Jones Meets Reverend M.J. Divine, better known as Father Divine. It was written by Jim Jones in 1959, and there is a completely unrecognizable photo of Jim Jones on the cover looking like some mid-century preppy college kid wearing a bow tie. 
of his association with the peace mission movement, Jones said, I have been immensely benefited by my association with this movement. Consequently, I feel I owe it to my many Christian associates to give an authentic, unbiased, and objective statement of my experiences with this group over the past few years. Before meeting with Father Divine and attending his sermons and his banquets, Jim Jones did not look favorably on the peace mission movement or its leader. Now, that's pretty fucking ironic, Jones passing judgment on another religious leader when we consider what he did to his followers in the 70s. The first time Jones attended one of Father Divine's banquets, he admitted he was filled with hypocrisy. He didn't understand the way the members of the mission movement worshipped, why food was such a huge part of their gatherings, and that's because he didn't understand Father Divine or what he stood for. Jim Jones was invited to speak the first time he attended an event of Father Divine's. Even through his doubts, he was moved by the invitation. Reverend Jones, we are happy to have you in our midst. We would be happy for you to speak volitionally according to your own understanding, because this is a hall of democracy. We do not impose any of our religious convictions upon you. Jim Jones was moved by these words, by the commitment the mission members had to be positive, not only in their own communication, but when speaking about others. He was shocked at the level of democracy that truly existed within the peace mission movement. There was no judgment. There was no criticism of other religions or other religious leaders. And I think we all know that can be a pretty uncommon thing among different religious sects and practices. But seeing wasn't just believing for Jim Jones. He went out into the Philadelphia community. He spoke to business leaders, civic leaders. He asked, was Father Divine as philanthropic as he projected himself to be? And yes, he absolutely was. No matter with whom Jim Jones spoke, even if folks didn't believe in Father Divine's faith or that he was God on earth, everyone confirmed the work he did for the community in Philadelphia and his commitment to civil rights was legit. There are over 30 pages of praise for Father Divine and the mission in this booklet. So what happened between the 1950s and the late 1960s after Father Divine passed away? Because after his death... Jim Jones had a very different perspective about the peace mission movement. In June 1971, Jim Jones and the members of his peace temple visited the peace mission movement at the Divine Lorraine in Philadelphia. Father Divine passed away in 1965 when he was 89 years old. And since then, Mother Divine II, sweet angel, ran the mission on his behalf. Perhaps Jim Jones thought he could strong-arm Sweet Angel and the Peace Mission followers because when he showed up in Philly that summer, he showed up with a purpose. He wanted to take over Father Divine's mission. Jones even claimed to be Father Divine. He was a new vessel for Father Divine's spirit, and therefore he should be the one leading the mission. Sweet Angel said shit on that. There was no way in hell a 40-year mission that supported people all over the world would have been handed over to Jim Jones. Jones was thrown out of the Divine Lorraine by mission members, but he didn't take no for an answer. He and members of the Peace Temple that joined him in Philly stood outside the Divine Lorraine with bullhorns. They encouraged members to leave the peace mission movement and instead follow him. That may have been the last time he set foot inside the Divine Lorraine, but it was not his last attempt to usurp Father Divine's legacy. Almost every year for the next five years, Jim Jones and his followers took bus trips around the country, and those trips almost always passed through Philadelphia. Jones made every effort to convince Peace Mission followers to leave and join him. 
A woman named Dorothy Darling, a secretary for the Divine's International Peace Mission, told a reporter for the Baltimore Sun that every time Jim Jones and the Peace Temple came to town, a few members of the Peace Mission movement left with him. We don't know how many, nor do we know if any of them wound up in the Jonestown Commune in Guyana in 1977 when the Peace Temple moved to South America. We don't know how many members of the Peace Mission movement in Philadelphia may have been among the 900 people who died as a result of consuming flavorade mixed with cyanide and animal tranquilizers at the hands of Jim Jones in 1978. The majority of the Peace Mission movement followers lived and worked at the Divine Lorraine on Broad Street in Philadelphia until 1999 when the mission closed its doors at that giant yellow building with the enormous red sign on the roof. The Divine Lorraine was purchased in 2000, and then it sat abandoned like an eyesore on the corner of Broad and Fairmount. It sold again in 2006 to a company called Rain Hotel, and their plan was to convert the old hotel into apartments, but that didn't happen. Instead, the place was gutted, Antique furniture left over from the late 1800s and early 1900s was either sold off or stolen. Fixtures, lighting, anything that wasn't nailed down, hell, even some shit that was nailed down was ripped out and sold for salvage. Looking at the Divine years ago was just heartbreaking. The destruction inside, the neglect, versus what it was like when Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement owned the Divine Lorraine. They brought together people of different races, backgrounds, faith. They focused on ensuring every member of the movement had food and housing security. Members were paid for any work they did at the mission. They made sure democracy existed within a religious organization. No matter how bad the building got, you can't destroy a legacy like that. What probably saved the Divine Lorraine from demolition, like so many other of Willis Hale's eccentric properties, was its addition to the National Register of Historic Properties in 2002. Regardless of what happened to the Divine Lorraine after the Peace Mission Movement sold the building, the foundation was strong. I mentioned earlier the Divine Lorraine was purchased in 2012 by a developer named Eric Blumenfeld. His plan to restore the building, convert it into apartments, create space for commercial properties, actually came to fruition. And he kept that awesome sign on the roof so it will always be known as the Divine Lorraine. You can see the interior, including apartments, online at the thedivinelorrainehotel.com. While it isn't a hotel, they retain the name from long ago. Oddly enough, I've never heard or found any ghost stories associated with the Divine Lorraine. It was built before the turn of the century. So many different tenants and residents, you'd think there would be tales of haunting, but no. Not one orb. Not one spectral voice rising up along the grand double staircase. No floating apparitions or ominous feelings. If there ever were any spirits haunting the Divine Lorraine, I imagine they found peace among the members of the Peace Mission Movement, surrounded by the power of positive thinking, unity, and inseparability, led by Reverend Major Jealous Divine. Twisted Philly is researched, hosted, and produced by me, Dina Marie and available bi-weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Twisted Philly to see many of the locations and histories I discuss in the show. All research sources are available in the episode notes. 